The BioWorld Insider Podcast. This is the BioWorld Insider Podcast. I'm Lynn Yaffe, BioWorld's publisher. Okay, everyone who has COVID-19 news fatigue, please raise your hand. That would be everyone, right? BioWorld's journalists are no exception. Even as we've cranked out almost 7,000 articles since the beginning of the pandemic, we're always looking ahead at what the next big impact will be. And that's long COVID. About half of all people who have had the virus will be affected by this complex syndrome that's still being defined. That's more than 100 million people globally, which is likely a low estimate. 19 symptoms related to the syndrome range from long-term fatigue to multi-organ failure. So this is about much more than just a respiratory illness. The impact to society could be enormous because we have no idea how long everyone will continue to experience the syndrome. So we decided to analyze the research to better understand how the syndrome is even being identified and studied. We also took a deep dive into what kinds of treatments are in the pipeline. Today, joining BioWorld's managing editor, Michael Fitzhugh, to discuss these issues are Annette Brendel, our senior science editor who reviewed all of the latest published research, and Lee Landenberger, our staff writer who dug into the pipeline of potential therapeutics to treat long COVID. They're going to discuss their findings, which were just published in BioWorld. Over to you, Michael. Thanks, Lynn. So much about this pandemic has been eye-opening for me, from the multinational emergence of agreement that we're in a public emergency in the first place, to the incredible pace at which scientists, policymakers, and everyday people just totally reoriented their waking hours to figure out what to do about it. With so much urgency and so much impact on our families and daily lives, the idea that we'd eventually begin to kind of have the wherewithal to really start to come to grips with the long-term impacts of this global tragedy has sometimes felt hard to imagine. But that's really happening now. Recently, for our readers, but also for our own sakes, we paused for a few moments to ask, do we really understand what long COVID is and how it's affecting people beyond those initial acute stages of the disease where so much of our attention has been focused? And what does it mean for young people, especially those who too often in the industry are treated as an afterthought or only somewhat better, a later priority in the clinical sphere? Annette, you've put together something of an answer for the staff, and more importantly, our readers. Get us started. What do you learn? Thanks, Michael, for taking the time to talk to me. I'd say that um, there are several pieces of news that came out in the last few weeks that shed a little light on long COVID for both adults on the one hand and then children and young people on the other. So for adults, the biggest news is probably on the cell biology side. There was a systems biology study published in Cell that identified four factors that increased the likelihood of developing long COVID. And um, a piece of good news is that you can see all of those factors quite early during acute infections um, and that there are ways to you know, turn this into therapeutic strategies probably. So for example, high levels of um, SARS-CoV-2 virus in the blood, but also reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, which is this usually harmless infection that 95% of us have without any symptoms, um, increase the risk of getting long COVID. 
And that would suggest that maybe aggressive antiviral treatment during the acute phase to bring those viral levels down could help prevent long COVID from being able to establish itself in the first place. So likewise, one risk factor is the presence of certain autoantibodies in the blood. Remind me what autoantibodies are. So they are antibodies that bind to our own proteins. And they're, um, you know, if there are too many of them or they are the worst kind, you get autoimmune disease. Um, but a lot of us actually have such antibodies and usually without any symptoms or a diagnosed autoimmune disease either, um, maybe because the levels are too low um, or for whatever reason, that is actually still very confusing. Anyways, um, in, in this cell paper, they found that the presence of autoantibodies to certain proteins that are important to the antiviral immune response increased the risk of long COVID. So again, that suggests that um, long COVID may be more likely to develop um, when the body is not that good at controlling acute COVID. And so aggressive treatment of acute COVID could reduce the risk of long COVID. So that was the big recent news for adults. And for children, last week saw the publication of the most rigorous epidemiological study to date. And the good news there was that they lowered the estimate um, of how many children and young people actually get long COVID. Um, there have been wildly divergent estimates for that. And um, the highest estimate so far has been 50%, 50. And this new paper says that probably at the upper end, it is 14%, 1-4. So that's quite a bit less. Um, they are still, it's still a big range, 1% to 14%, but that was good news. Yeah, I, I know when I read that in your story, I breathed this sort of sigh of relief as a parent of a couple of teenagers. I think <laughs> that the when I read that 50% number, I just, my eyes just bulged, just yeah. freaking out a little bit, but <laughs> took a breath. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, no, researchers. I have, uh, yes, I have a teenager too, and I am very glad that uh, you know her risk is lower than some people thought. But I think also what, what these div wildly divergent numbers show us is that long COVID is, is literally still being defined on the research front. And there was progress there too last week um, when a consortium put out a research definition of long COVID in children and young people. You know, I know with really complex conditions, sometimes there's a lot of divergence in thinking about what really comprises the condition, you know, what the what symptoms should define it. Why does it really matter to have a research definition? A research definition is a way to standardize research so that you can compare different studies more easily. And um, one of the issues with getting a handle on long COVID on the prevalence and and other things about it is that different researchers do studies using different definitions or sort of use the data they have. Um, and then, but then if you want to pull together several studies in what's called a meta-analysis to give you the sorts of numbers you need to be able to find, for example, rare symptoms, um, that's hard to do if the data sets are very different because you're just tossing everything, you know, things that may not go well together into one study. So um, a research definition um, helps people to think about in the beginning what they need to collect to really be able to not just, you know, show things in their study, but perhaps be part of bigger meta-analyses down the road 
It's not a clinical definition in the sense that it should not be used to define who has access to medical services, and the researchers were, were very clear on that. Um, the other important thing about this research definition is that, like the long COVID definition for adults that was published by the World Health Organization last year, and that this is meant to complement, it was arrived at by consensus. Um, so a group of researchers, but also service delivery folks and, and people with lived experience, which includes patients themselves and those who care for them, um, evaluated like a number of statements about long COVID to see which were important enough to include. And then that was decided by consensus. And um, Karen Stevenson is the chair of the Health Research Authority in, in Britain. He contrasted it to what he called the gobsack method, which is the good old boys sitting around a table method. Um, and by including different stakeholders, you really get a richer idea of what is critical for the disease, um, not just from the point of view of medical personnel, but for the patients themselves who live with this every day. I understand you've got a clip of Stevenson talking about that idea. Is set us up. Where are we about to hear? So this is Stevenson talking at a press conference last week where he presented this, uh, both the prevalence study and the research definition and um, describing the Gobsat method and how it differs from the Delphi method and how the Delphi method is superior. Well, in a sense, it's the democratization of decision-making. When I was a young doctor, there was a thing called gobsat. Gobsat stood for good old boys sat around a table, gray beards, usually white, older men who would dominate proceedings. And the, the views of one very loud person might determine the outcome of that discussion. And the Delphi process was developed initially by the Rand Corporation to try and remove that dom domineering influence. To, to Effectively, every person involved has a single vote. My view counts for no more than anyone else. So, Annette, that perspective brings us to another dimension of your story. You quoted a couple of patient advocates who said that long COVID, quote, has a strong claim to be the first illness created through patients finding one another on Twitter. So, yeah, that was an interesting, um, catchy thing that I found while I was doing the research for my story was uh, that phrase came from Felicity Callard and Eliza Perego, who are both researchers and themselves long COVID sufferers. And the way that they described it in their paper is that um, early in 2020, the World Health Organization was really quite optimistic still in its estimates. They said that the median time from onset to clinical recovery was two weeks for mild cases and three to six weeks for moderate to severe cases. And there were patients who were just not recovering along this timeline. Um, and they posted about their experiences on social media. And really from there, it um, got attention from the regular media. And that is how it first came to the attention of the medical establishment and policymakers. Very interesting. And in line with broader trends that we're seeing to give patients collectively a more active role in shaping the medical view of their illnesses. Absolutely. So was there anything that struck you about the definition? 
Um, so on the one hand, it's, it's somewhat alarming that many people seem to have multiple long COVID symptoms. The definitions only require, require one symptom, but in the children and young people prevalence study, the cutoff was, was three symptoms that they looked at. And about half of the youngsters that had long COVID at all had five or more symptoms. So that is, that's a lot of symptoms, right? Um, yeah. On the other hand, you know, and, and in a more optimistic vein, the definition of long COVID is pretty short term. Symptoms after 12 weeks count as long COVID. So although people are now sounding the alarm that after the acute crisis of, of COVID-19, we're going to have this longer crisis of what's called long COVID or the post-acute sequelae of COVID, you know, there's a bunch of names for it. And that is definitely going to happen, but we still don't know how long that is going to be. So that also means that there's hope that long COVID will not turn out to be a chronic condition for most people. Hmm. You know, hearing about the way that this kind of emerged made me think a little bit about some of the um, definitions of illness that arose around the first responders to um, 9-11 and um, you know, veterans of the Gulf War, just this sort of emergent understanding that that comes onto the scene. I mean, it really was an interesting example to me. What did you, I mean, do you think that there's there's precedent for the way that this definition has come into view? That I mean, that it really says something about the way that we're going to recognize illness in the longer term? So I do think what, what Callard and Perego wrote about as um, really this being a definition or or an illness that the patients themselves noticed and that they are more easily able to find each other via social media um, that struck me as hopeful in a sense because i do think that uh, in comparison to a gulf war illness where i think people found themselves you know initially doubted and perhaps sometimes even belittled by the medical establishment, um, when groups can find each other sooner, um, then hopefully help is on the way faster. Yeah, absolutely. So with the definition really being so dynamic and you know the way that it's coming into focus, it's kind of amazing to me that we actually have a huge number of drugs in development trials underway to to try to meet this challenge of long COVID. How does that even happen? Will you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a worldwide race, so there's a lot of competition. Uh, and Annette's been looking at tests, clinical trials that are over and done with, and they're looking at results and getting a much better idea of what's out there and, and what works or may not work. But I think just the breadth of this list, this chart that we have in the story, I find it fascinating. We found 41 studies that are either preparing to go on, most of them are prepping to go on out of this group. They, they still are recruiting for the most part. But 41 studies around the world, there's studies being done in the US and Europe, of course, but also in other places, South America, Brazil in particular, Australia, New Zealand, and in Asia as well. So out of these 41 studies that we're following of all these different drugs that they're trying in treating long COVID, 
we gathered the data from the BioWorld archives and from Clarivate's database Cortellus and clinicaltrials.gov. The trials are being conducted around the world. There's some in South America and Australia, as well as the United States and Europe. And some are on the road to completion and others haven't even begun recruiting. So the symptoms that they're looking at are a wide range. Some of them are just brain fog, not being able to think clearly, what one research institute calls disturbed thinking. And then there's also headaches and poor sleep, and it goes all the way from there to organ failures. Are the drugs that are being developed trying to hit those symptoms kind of one by one, or are they trying to get at the multifactorial nature of long COVID? The primary endpoints for, for many of these studies include multiple symptoms. And a lot of those symptoms are ones that fade away, as Annette mentioned, will, will fade away after a few months. The longer term symptoms that may last out of it, we, we still don't know. That's what these tests are designed to measure. Interesting. In terms of the way that people are approaching long COVID, are we talking mostly pills, IV treatments, you know, logistics, I know, has been sort of just a big factor in COVID in general. You know, how are we getting treatments to people? How feasible is it to get them, you know, into a clinic for an IV infusion versus just giving them, you know, pills at the doctor's office and sending them home? Um, did you notice any trends in terms of delivery? Uh, the only trend is that it's a wide range. There's no <laughs> delivery system that's off the table. There are ones that are inhaled. Uh, there's intranasal, there's IVs, oral versions, and even rectal versions of the drugs that are being tested. And these drugs, again, they're an there's the antis, which are antivirals and anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, antioxidants. And there were also stem cells being tested, biologics, even statins. And remdesivir, it's here to stay. <laughs> they're testing it a lot. Interesting. And, you know, I think that that diversity of delivery methods is maybe reflective of the diversity of locales in which trials are being conducted. You know, you mentioned sort of the global nature of that, and that's been something that's clearly come through in our coverage is just, you know, these trials and the research into all aspects of COVID, including long COVID, are really happening everywhere. It's like every nation's scientific vanguard has kind of brought their A game to this. That's just amazed me from day one. Yeah, seemingly. And it's not just the width of the geography that's that's interesting. Most of the studies that we're following in this bio world list are composed of adult participants. Uh, there are a lot fewer studies in teens than there are in adults. And then there's even fewer uh, in children under the age of 11 than there are in teenagers. So tell me about that age aspect of it. I mean, uh, th so there are some of these studies that are looking at long COVID in that, that younger age, those younger age groups. There are some, uh, but there are very few out of the 41. It's a, it's a small minority. And again, these are studies that are just getting underway. I wonder if that research uh, definition that Annette was talking about will help spark some of that research. You know, I think that Annette, um, do you think that having that definition in place is going to make trials more possible in younger people? 
Possibly, um, although what I'm thinking about is that perhaps the cell biology showing that um, a lot of the risk factors are present at the time of infection will will spur trials um, for you know treating the acute infection with an eye to preventing long COVID. I could see that. Um, the research definitions for now are more on an epidemiological level, and certainly they would make good standardized endpoints. So that is also a possibility that that'll show that it'll show up in in the drug discovery effort that way. Annette, I, I have a question for you. I I loved your story. I thought it really brought into focus a lot. A lot I'd been wondering about. You wrote about acute COVID cases being replaced by long COVID cases and that it will be a drawn-out public health crisis. Are we talking, it becomes a crisis because why? There will be so many, perhaps, or how much money it takes to research into it and solve the problem? What makes it a crisis? I think what will make it a crisis, um, and people are most worried about low- and middle-income countries. So anything that is chronic, right, ends up um, being a strain on the healthcare system just for longer, right? Um, in some ways, we saw that with acute COVID because people were in the hospital for a long time when they had severe acute COVID, even compared to something like the flu. So then if you have, you know, 100 hospital beds, um, you have a bigger problem if the average stay in that hospital bed is eight weeks than if it is four weeks. So likewise, if you suddenly have, um, you know, some number, whatever the number is, of uh, chronically ill people more than you were preparing for, then your healthcare system, um, especially if it is already straining, um, has a problem. So that's what that is really about. Okay, thanks. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how that element and uh, the other elements around trials and recognition of long COVID develops in the uh, months and years to come. Annette, Lee, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Um, I'm going to pass back to Lynn. Well, team, I think we better brace ourselves for the uh, COVID news fatigue syndrome um, because it's going to continue, I think, for a long time. And uh, this this is a really important topic. And what is especially interesting to me is that it, it did start bubbling up on social media. I first started hearing from individual patients and patient groups who are really there's a lot of chatter about it that doctors and researchers weren't recognizing that hey we're you know the acute sickness is gone but i'm still sick what is this so bioworld will continue to cover this topic as long as need be annette lee michael we appreciate your work and i know we'll we'll just keep tracking long COVID and the syndrome as we learn about it. As always, Bioworld will continue to keep you informed of all the most important scientific, clinical, and business updates. That's our show for today. If you need to track the development of drugs, turn to Bioworld.com, follow us on Twitter, or email us at newsdesk at Bioworld.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for joining us. Bioworld. 
published by Clarivate is a subscription-based news service, but all of our COVID-19 content, over 6,000 articles and data entries since the start of the pandemic, are freely accessible.